Well, welcome back to Two Pastors and a Mic. My name is Corey. And I'm Shanik. And we're so glad that you joined us. Wherever you're listening from, we appreciate all of your love and support. If you haven't already, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Share this with your friends via text or on social media. We appreciate the support that you've showed us through now 80 episodes. Welcome to episode 80. We still have our guest, Bishop Jamie Englehart, part two. I know we left you hanging last week, but we have him back this week, and it's going to be good. Yeah, and so last week, Bishop just kind of shared his story, kind of coming out of really legalism and how you talked about uh, one of the first messages you preached was on um, what a liar if you lie, lie, you fry. You fry yeah. <laughs> and so coming out of that and legalism into really, I feel like a message of love and grace and really wanting to um, portray the father in his right light and as a father of love. And I just want, want you to kind of go into that transition because I feel like when I first met you 14, 15 years ago, um, the message was grace that I heard. And a lot of the messages that you had were just also overcoming some of those myths and mistranslations as well, which we talked about your book in the yeah. last episode. And so just kind of building that foundation. But then I feel like, and and maybe you've even felt this, and I think you've even preached this a few times, uh, maybe four or five years ago around that time, there was even a greater shift into more love and inclusion. And just kind of maybe talk about that process as well to get things kicked off today. Yeah. First, first of all, thanks again, guys. Uh, proud of you guys for doing this. You guys are doing a great job. And I, I love this. I've had, I don't know how many people over the last probably year who started listening to you guys and they finally contact me one day and say, man, we, we kept listening to this podcast, two pastors and a mic. And these guys sounded so much like what stuff you say. And then they kept saying this Bishop Jamie. And then it finally dawned on us one day. These are, this is your home church. These are like guys connect you to I'm like, yeah, yeah. I said, they're, there I claim them. I said, I, I love them. And, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, my, my, my journey, you know, as I said, you know, started classical Pentecostal, very legalistic, uh, began to step into really a bunch of different truths. Um, but then it was late nineties started to get an understanding of the grace of God. And that, that was a major shift. I've, I've said this now for years that I believe my baptism into the grace of God was greater than my baptism in the Holy Spirit. I mean, I had a powerful encounter at five, six years old at an altar when I was a little boy, uh, where I was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where God literally, I saw myself like preaching to like a sea of people that were black and brown, you know, which is where a lot of my overseas stuff has been predominantly in Africa and, and like South America and things like that. And, uh, and I just knew right then that I was called to preach. But then going through the whole process of all the stuff I was taught about God, it, it really caused me to really not want anything to do with a lot of the God that was presented to me. And so then once I had my awakening and I kind of came back into fellowship and I still had some of that legalistic side, but once grace hit, it changed everything. It, it changed the way I was a husband. It changed the way I treated my kids. Uh, grace was huge because when you're raised in so much law and so much legalism, it, it, you know, there's a reason why Paul said when the law comes, sin revives, it literally, uh, stirs up old mindsets. It causes you and, and it causes you to be religious and religion is angry. I mean, I was an angry preacher. 
you know, I mean, I would preach angry. Matter of fact, I remember the man who was like a first father in the faith to me when he taught me how to preach. He said, you start with the altar. So in other words, you start your sermon, not with a passage of scripture. You start with what result you want with like how many people you want to come to the altar, especially as a quote unquote evangelist. And so pretty much what got people to the altar is you had to preach to them how miserable and nasty and dirty and horrible they were. So the worse they felt, then they'd come to the altar to get prayer, you know, because if you had a full altar as an evangelist, you had a successful meeting. And so, you know, altars would be full, man. I mean, people would be, oh, God, you know, I mean, crying out, thinking they're horrible, nasty worms because I just convinced them they were, you know. So rather than rather than convince them that they were beloved sons and daughters of God, it was, no, you're, you know, you're nasty and you know it. I mean, it was like uh, I was at a church up here in Michigan a couple of weeks ago and we were singing uh, that uh, Amazing Grace but the, the 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 newer kind of version of the it. good father the good good father song uh no no it, it was actually uh it was actually uh, uh anyway it's a song about grace but they said in there the verse from the old amazing grace uh that saved a wretch like me hmm. and when we were singing it i turned to the pastor and i said it saved i said a son like me hmm. you know i said where we get this idea of wretch from is augustine and john calvin and everybody else it's like god's always seen us as a son he saved a son like me. I was just a son that was in the pig pen acting like an idiot, you know, but I didn't know I was a son. And so it was like that message of sonship began to shift because that brought identity. But then I began to really boldly preach grace. And of course, when I did that, I had all kinds of doors shut. In 1998, 99, I resigned from the denomination. Uh, I sent my resignation in, in good standing and with a letter, honored them. Two weeks later, I got my letter back that said, uh, we don't accept your resignation. Instead, we're dismissing you as an immoral and unethical minister, even though I did nothing immoral and nothing unethical. What I did unethical is I left. And what that did was literally over a 10-week period, I was I was scheduled in meetings two years in advance. And all of them except four were canceled within 10 weeks. Uh, it was like blackballed immediately. Uh, so that whole world shut down on me. And all of a sudden, I was like, had to start all over and just because you wanted to preach a loving God. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, part of that also was about government. The assemblies of God at that time, it still is. It's a congregational government. I disagreed with it. I believe that's the sin of the Nicolaitans. The word Nico, Nike, Nico means overcome and Galatians where we get the word laity from. And in the book of revelation, he said, you know, you've tolerated the sin of the Nicolaitans. In other words, it's a congregation overcome by laity. Uh, it's because it's to be governed by elders. Uh, fivefold ministry gifts, and so I, I my struggle was with government. That was the apostolic side of me, and 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 you know I didn't believe in a, a rapture uh, anymore, so I couldn't sign the paper that said every year that I do, and and so it, that, anyway that whole thing just you know it fell apart. People might be shocked by the denominational things that you have to do to align oh. yourself with oh. being able to call yourself, Hey, I'm part of this network. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just, just to be able to sign the paper every year to get your license or ordination, you have to sign a piece of paper, you know, you send a certain amount of money in every year, every January, and you have to agree with their fundamentals of the faith. And if you don't, you're supposed to write a letter, but then most of the time, if you write a letter, they don't really pay attention to it. The moment you disagree, they boot you. Now, some of that is changing. I mean, there's actually, I was just, with a, somebody got passed through who said that uh, on the national level, they're removing like the 16 fundamentals. They're, 
looking at like moving it down or, or the, the somebody's in Canada, I think is doing that right now. So th- there's change that's taking place and I'm grateful for that. And I, you know, I've still got a lot of assembly God churches I preach in and they're my brothers. I love them. I don't have anything against any of them. Um, but that whole world all of a sudden kind of shut on me. And then God opened up all these other doors that all of a sudden were hungry for what I was talking about. And so grace began to come to the forefront, but even, even in the message of grace in quote unquote grace movements, there's all kinds of different tastes and flavors. Mm-hmm. You know, there's grace. As long as you believe this, you can be with us. There's grace and you have to believe that. So, you know, if you change your view of the atonement, yeah, you're, we're grace with you, but we don't agree with that. So now we don't talk to you anymore. Or if you have a different eschatology, now we don't talk to you. It, it's, it's, it's just sad how people that call themselves grace people don't give each other grace. And, you know, I've experienced kind of left foots of fellowship from, you know, two or three different organizations at one time or another. And mainly it's because I adopted nearly 20 years ago, really the, the mantra, if you may, of the reformation, which was reformed and always reforming. You know, I never, I never want to be stuck just preaching what I preached when I was in my twenties. I want to constantly be growing and increasing. And that's why I do my best to try not to present things dogmatically because I was very dogmatic when I was younger. I mean, like insanely dogmatic. And it was like my way or the highway. This is it. This is how you run things. But then you get older, you know, and you realize, you know, do I want to be right or do I want to be in a relationship? And I realized facts. Yeah. I realized, you know, friends were relationships were more important than black and white. And, but then it was now about, um, now, almost 11 years ago, I did a series. We had started a church in Michigan, and I did a series on agape. And I got to, it, what blew me away when I was teaching the series is that I'd preached at that time for over 20 years. And Paul said we're to be rooted and grounded in love. And the foundation of the gospel message is love. And yet I didn't understand it at all. I mean, I thought I did because I grew up, you know, singing Jesus loves me this, I know for the Bible tells me so. But when it come to really having encounters with that love, uh, I really hadn't. So I preached like eight weeks and then I got on an airplane to fly out to LA and I flew from Michigan to Chicago to O'Hare. And when I was there, someone had sent me an inbox, I think on Facebook that said, have you, have you read Tulian Shavidjian's new book, One Way Love? Uh, Tulian is Billy Graham's grandson. And I said, no, but it's got love in it. I'm on this love series, so I probably had to get it. So I put it in my Kindle right away, and I started to read it on my layover, and I knew I was in trouble on that four-hour flight because uh, I got into the first chapter, and Tulian was like the rebellious Graham grandson. Like, he had earrings. And so he shows up to Grandma Ruth and and Grandpa Billy's house for the first time for a family get-together. And, you know, of course, he's expecting that they're going to judge him and, and, you know, say stuff about his earrings instead his grandma Ruth walked up and gave him a pair of earrings she'd bought him a pair of earrings and it wasn't just that story but it was the whole eight weeks plus that story and it was like all of a sudden it so moved me because most of my life it was people didn't respond that way when you messed up you know I still remember when I was growing up if a girl got pregnant out of wedlock our church wouldn't do a shower for him I mean, wouldn't throw them a shower. It's like, that's when they need love more than ever before, you know? And I mean, my dad didn't marry divorcees, you know? I mean, if you'd been divorced, I mean, he wouldn't marry you, you know? I mean, it was just so much of that kind of stuff that we were biblical, but not necessarily Christ-like. 
You know, I mean, we, well, there's a difference. Yeah, hello. You know, I mean, we, we would follow the Bible to a T, but when it comes to really being like Jesus and how we treated people, uh, that, you know, but, but this is the crazy thing. My mom and dad treated people Christ-like, but the message wasn't, you know, so they actually really lived out love. And so I saw that demonstrated, but, the, but they didn't have the message down. You know, which is crazy because, you know, you'd think something you're living. Normally you get the message and then you have to learn how to live it. They literally lived it, but didn't really understand the message of it. But on that airplane, that four hour flight, and, and I've shared this all around the country, uh, watch stuff on YouTube. I've got it on there. I literally for four hours had like liquid love pour over me and I could not, I, I literally didn't stop crying for almost two weeks. I got off the airplane. My buddy in LA picked me up and he's in the inner city at Pomona, and he's like, bro, you know, what's the matter? You know, he's like, did you, you know, is your family okay? And I'm trying to explain to him, you know, through like cries, you know, I'm having this encounter with God. I could barely preach the three days I was with him. You know, I'd start crying. And I mean, I was not a crier. I was a shouter and a laugher. I would cry about twice a year. And it was like those floodgates open. And then I, I went to fly back home and then someone had sent me an email that week and said, you know, have you seen Danny Silk's new book, Loving Your Kids on Purpose? I'm like, no, but it's got love in it. So I might as well check that out too. And I did. And then I cried all the way back to Chicago because in the book, he brings out about raising our kids that our main job is to not just teach them how to behave, but teach them how to love. And I realized that I didn't know how. I, I knew how to storge love them. I, you know, I, I understood that family love. I understood phileo. I mean, my wife, my best friend, I understood Eros. I mean, I got two kids for heaven's sakes. But when it comes to agape, a one-way love that expects nothing in return, that a love that you can't earn, a love that has nothing to do with what you do or say, that one I realized because I was raised in fear and perfect love removes all fear. And if that's true, then fear removes love. That I was raised in a message of fear and I didn't know how to receive love. And I didn't really know how to give love. And... Uh, during that, during that trip, the Lord showed me like three specific things. My daughter and I's heart had always stayed connected, but my son and I's wasn't, we had, there'd been a disconnect and I couldn't explain it, but that book did. And when we, when I landed, uh, I, I, I called my wife in Chicago and said, make sure the kids are home tonight. I want to sit down and talk to y'all. She picked me up at the airport and she's like, what's going on with you? I mean, cause I was still half a wreck, you know, and I'm trying to explain to her. And I get home with my family and I sit them down and I begin to talk about this experience that I've been having and ask their forgiveness. You know, I mean, I got in front of my kids and I said, you know, forgive me. I've, I've been an ass, you know, like a lot, you know, I raised you according to law, even though I was preaching a message of grace, uh, just because I didn't understand this. And so I can tell a lot of times when I get around, uh, what I call angry preachers, uh, even people that preach grace, but they're still angry that they've not had that kind of encounter. Because once you've encountered his love like that, uh, it, it changed how I view humans. It changed how I viewed everybody. I mean, I'd literally, within the next six months after that, there's churches I'd preached at every year for 20 years, who people walked up to me and said, you know, we, we always enjoyed when you came, but then sometimes not. You know, you always messed with our stuff. Uh, we don't know what it is, but there's something different about you. It's it's like this time, like there's something, you know, and of course I couldn't tell, I mean, because it's just, you know, you're on your journey, but I had folks come up to me and they said, I even had folks say, man, you've been here coming here 20 years, never liked you, you know, but this time uh, we don't know what happened, 
but there's something different. And that was a radical, radical shift in me. So there's a lot of people that have started to get an understanding of grace in the new covenant. But once you really encounter his love, that changes everything because now you see value in every human and you begin to see value in yourself and you treat people differently. Yeah. I love that. Like love really is the the changing agent for us in Absolutely. our lives. And that's kind of the experience I wanted you to share because that's how I think, I know I perceived the change and even people around here, are, that's why I said four or five years ago, you, you started in it, but around four or five, maybe 2015, people were like, okay, he's been coming for a while and he kind of like blows up a lot of our theology and causes me to think about stuff in different ways. And I don't know if I like it or not, but around that time frame for us, 2015 yep. in this house, 2016, people were like, wow, I, I experienced him differently. Yep. And it was more of a message of the father's love and the father's heart towards us. And that's what we picked up on. Yeah. And that's well, what and, I picked up and, on and, too. And really that almost 11 years ago, that's when the Holy spirit really made real to me and, and gave me what I believe is kind of a mandate for the rest of my ministry. And he said, everywhere you go, I want you to remove all fear-based theology because fear and love cannot coexist. Hmm. And he said, I want you to repaint the father to the church. You know, I want you to, I want you to show them that he really is exactly what Jesus said he was. Uh, rather than this, you know, terrorizing God that a lot of people get a view of in the Old Testament from really misunderstanding of what it really was talking about in the Old Testament. And that's that's a major, major, major shift and major deconstruction with a lot of people. And once you've encountered his love, uh, that changes everything. Yeah. So since you used the word just uh, just right there, deconstruction, I am going to kind of put you on the spot because a lot of people have been going through deconstruction and I've seen the good, the bad, and even the ugly. Yep. And Corey and I were just having a conversation at our staff retreat this past week that um, I'm more in the ballpark of people having a few things they can hold on to through deconstruction. Because, um, of course, we even use that word. I relate it to like a project at the house. Like if I'm wanting to remodel, you know, my bathroom or something yeah. and I get in there and I get to demo and stuff and knocking stuff down and wanting to redo it. Oh, well then this ties into the master. Let me do that. Well, while we're at it, let's just do the kitchen. And then, <laughs> right. and then before you know it, you, you literally have a house you cannot live in. And that's why I related to that. And I know Corey has said like, sometimes the whole thing needs to come down so that it can be, be rebuilt properly. But in my experience, I've seen some of those people that have just knocked down every single thing like, <laughs> they are not in a good place yep. and it, you know, and sometimes what I've seen is, um, and, and this is again, just my experience. And of course, timing, this will change. The time will change as well. Like I could look back 10 years from now and be like, Oh, well that, that needed to happen in their life that way. True. But as I see it now, some of this stuff like really is not just helping They're They're in a place of, um, like trying to grasp and, grab hold of anything. Yeah. So just kind of talk sure. briefly well, on I mean, what, what you think, you know, yeah. maybe a good way to go through it would be, or sure. I don't know everybody's different yeah. and I get that, but just from, from well, you, just some for wisdom. A lot, of, a lot of people, deconstruction has led to destruction. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's for me, my deconstruction has been a process over 32 years of deconstructing wrong ideas and wrong beliefs, but never deconstructed belief in God. You know, I mean, for me, 
that was just not only never on the table, but I'd encountered him too many times. And what I found is this is, and it's not a hundred percent, I would say 90% at least of people that deconstruct where they actually walk away from faith at all. And even then, uh, you know, I tell people, I said, relax with that. Yeah. You know, the Holy Spirit is in him. He's, he didn't leave. Just because you stop believing doesn't mean he stopped believing in you. And give people time on their journey. Some of that's just part of their journey. And people freak out. You know, it's, it's part of the great falling away or, you know, apostasy. Yeah, and, it's yeah, like, and when I said that, I'm not worried about that at all. Right. Like, I'm super oh, exactly. chill about it. But, yeah. I, but I do see it. Here's where my concern comes in. I do see it affects people as far as, like, their parenting in their workplaces and yes. other areas of their life where this part's like, yeah, relax. God's love still there. The Holy Spirit's still yep. in them. Yep. Like they're they're good as far as that goes. But then this thinking and like their 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 world is so like turned upside down that it affects a lot of other very important areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think it's so important. You know, I mean, the Eastern Church. You know, there's a reason Paul said that Scripture is not for private interpretation, because the Eastern Church they constructed, deconstructed, reconstructed in community. There's something about staying connected relationally in community that you can actually discuss these things with people and, and realize. But the, the thing I found a lot of times is people that deconstruct to a degree where they just walk away from any of it, it's normally people that have never really had a real spiritual encounter. I mean, I mean one that they can't explain. You know, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, seeing into the realm of the spirit or, or, or uh, you know, like, like the encounter I had for two weeks of, of liquid love or whatever it is, you know, because it's not the truth. One of the myths in my book is it's not the truth that makes us free. It's the knowledge of the truth. And, you know, Paul said men would ever be learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Gnosko is a Greek word, which is encountering or experiencing the truth. And so. Uh, you know, if, if my experience is only a mental ascent, then I can, then I can be removed from that experience by someone mentally descending me. But once I've had an encounter, you know, for me, it's the, it's the man that Jesus healed that was blind from birth and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin bring him in and they're questioning him and they bring his parents in, in the book of Acts and they're questioning about Jesus's theology. And he's like, listen, man, I don't know about none of that. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. You know, he's like, you can't explain my, my encounter away. That's why a man with an experience is, is, is always uh, going to be the one that you're not going to be able to argue with because he experienced it, you know? And, and there's times that people could say, well, my experience was subjective and, you know, to where they start doubting the experience. But I had encounters with God growing up that I, I'd never cease. Even in my six years of running from God, the ministry church, I'd never didn't believe that God was real. You know, I mean, I'd sit around getting drunk and high with my friends and I'd be, I'd be sharing Jesus with them, you know, and I'd be telling them, yeah, you're going to see me preach on TV someday while we're, you know, while we're stoned, you know, and they'd be like, shut up, dude. You know, and I mean, you know, years later, a bunch of them called me, bro, I just saw you on TV as I've been interviewed several times and stuff like that. But I mean, that's where, so God for me was like never on the table of whether he was real because I'd experienced him, but it was my view of God that was. And I think that's the key. Our view of God is what's constantly changing. I mean, Paul said we behold him as in a mirror and are changing into that image from glory to glory. And, but then if he, then uh, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us what we're seeing in the mirror. He said it's the face of Jesus Christ. So the more I behold him, the clearer I see him, 
the the more I'm changed, the more I'm transformed, the more um, reconstructed, if you may. But that's where, to me, so much of it comes down to that stage of of having an encounter. You know, because if the encounter is not there, um, it's easy to explain anything away. Because man, you, you can get online. I mean, all you gotta do is just go, start going down the rabbit hole on YouTube, and I mean, you know people start talking about how the Bible was put together. And I mean, you know, I mean, you, you can just walk away from everything and say, it's all just man-made a whole bunch of mess, but I can't walk away from what I've experienced. That's good. Bishop, man, so much good stuff. Again, if you want more of his stuff, if you've listened to these last two episodes and you like what you're hearing, never heard of before, himconnect.net. He's got a book out there, several hours of teaching. He's got his Awaken Academy, which is going to be continued to add to over the next several years. You can continue to learn and grow. Again, one of my favorite things about Bishop is he's, at least from my experience, and I can only speak from the last decade, is he hasn't been dogmatic. He's he's challenging. He's thought-provoking, but he leaves you with space for you to explore. And as a teacher and someone who sat under you, yeah. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. I think um, uh, I... My entire life was changed because of moving to Hill City and being a part of this team and getting to have relationship and questioning everything I believed in an environment that allowed me to question. So I appreciate that so much. I think one of my favorite things I want to mention this because we've talked a lot about interpreting or studying uh, the Bible or topics within Christianity. One of my favorite things that I've learned from you is when you are studying and when are you interpret and when you are interpreting and when you're questioning things, you always say pick the view or the understanding that looks the most like Jesus. And for someone who me, who has been highly educated in interpreting stuff, that's been the most freeing is it allows you to disagree with topics from the understanding of, man, this one, this is why I believe this. I can understand both sides. I can uh, articulate both sides, but this one looks most like Jesus. So that's why I'm picking it. And that has been the most freeing thing for me in my own study. And you said there's a difference between being biblical versus being Christ-like. Yep. And if you've never heard those verses or those things together, maybe we should do a future podcast on the difference between being biblical versus Christ-like. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to live in a biblical world. Yep. I want to live in a Christ-like world, Come on. and they're not the same. And so, again, Bishop, thank you for being on. We appreciate your insight. Again, himconnect.net. Go find him on Facebook. And why don't you sign us off one more time, Bishop? We love you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it.